We will now commence our first panel on religious fundamentalism and international extremism. I would like to invite our speakers and chairperson for this panel to take their seats on stage. For this session and the subsequent session, panelists will each speak for 15 minutes. A bell will sound once five minutes before the allotted time is up and twice when the time is up. This is to ensure enough time for Q&A and discussion. Now, please welcome Dr. Shashi Jakuma, Head of the Centre of Excellence for National Security at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. Dr. Jayakumar will introduce our speakers and moderate the session. Um, very good afternoon to everybody. My name is Sashi Jayakumar. I head the Centre of Excellence for National Security, which is at the RSIS think tank in Singapore. The RSIS think tank is the other big think tank in Singapore. Thank you, IPS, for the invitation to be here. We, we appreciate it. We have, uh, for the first opening panel on religious fundamentalism and international extremism, three uh, acclaimed and very accomplished speakers. I'm not going to read out to you, in the interest of time, their full bios, but you have their bios before you, and I, I heartily encourage you to, to read them so you understand the context and background that they are coming from. In order, the first speaker is Professor Mark Jürgensmeyer. He's Distinguished Professor of Sociology and Global Studies, also founding director of the Ophelia Center for Global and International Studies at the University of California, uh, uh, United States. The second speaker is Professor Jonathan Fox. He's the Yehuda Avner Professor of Religion and Politics, Department of Political Studies, Faculty of Social Sciences at Bar-Ilan University in Israel. The third speaker is Ms. Farah Pandit, Adjunct Senior Fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, CFR in the United States. So without further ado, could you please join me in warmly welcoming our first speaker, Professor Mark Jürgensmeyer. Well, thank you very much, Professor Kumar, and it's a light to be back in Singapore. Um, uh, let's see if this, this thing works. <laughs> yeah. Um, today I'm going to be talking about the global rise of religious uh, nationalism, but I want to begin telling a story because just a year ago or so, I was in northern Iraq where I was invited by a group of Muslim clergy, 400 Muslim clergy in northern Iraq uh, who came together to discuss the issue of religious extremism. This is my picture of the gathering at the time. I was the only non-Muslim invited to, to the event. Uh, and I was curious why they would invite me to talk about the subject, which was takfir. And takfir is a term which literally means uh, accusing somebody else of heresy. It's a way of kind of othering other people and to, in, in a sense, it's a kind of a form of religious fundamentalism. It's a kind of uh, to say that we are the true Muslims and you're not. Uh, and of course, what they have in mind was ISIS, but I had to tell them at the outset that even though I was not an expert on Islam, I could testify that there was takfir everywhere in the world, that they were not alone. It's not a Muslim problem. It's not an Iraqi problem. There's takfir in my own country. American politics right now is full of it. British politics, Laos, is full of it. Uh, we live in a, where, a world in which takfir is on the rise. And the question is, why? Interestingly, also last year, uh, I was able to talk with some people who were refugees of ISIS, and they could affirm that in their mind it was not something that was traditionally Muslim. It was a strange religion, in the words of one of the person uh, with whom I interviewed. It was, not, it was not your grandmother's Islam. In Myanmar last year, I met with this fellow, 
Ashin Muratu, who was a monk who um, propounded a form of Buddhism that also many Buddhists would regard as not really truly Buddhist. But he had gained an extraordinary following. And when I first came in to talk with him, he kind of chuckled and looked at me smilingly and said, do I look like a terrorist? And I wanted to say, yeah, you look like all of the other terrorists I've interviewed. <laughs> you know, you're kind of banal. The reason why he said that is that he had just been on the cover of Time magazine with his caption, The Buddhist Face of Terror. And he wanted to tell me, oh, we Buddhists believe in nonviolence. I said, yeah, of course, yeah. We believe in nonviolence. I said, yes, yes, of course. I'm trying to think how to get out of this situation. I said, but you also believe that sometimes Buddhists have to defend themselves. And he said, yes, yes, there are times when... Buddhists have to defend themselves against the enemies of, the, of Buddhism. And I said, well, who are the enemies of Buddhism? He said, those people who are trying to destroy Buddhism. Well, who are those people? Those Muslims. They're the ones who are trying to destroy us. And, of course, the kind of cruelty with which his followers have taken upon themselves to carry out his mission against Islam has just been truly devastating. You know, Muslims burned alive in their houses. It was a horrible situation, but it, another sign of the rise of religious violence around the world. Just a couple months ago, as Matthew Matthews just said, in Christchurch, it was a Christian. He said, oh, no, he, didn't, he wasn't the kind of pious Christian that we know. Yes, but he was a Christian, and he believed. If you look at the gun stock, he had a list of all the different places where, in history, where Christian and Muslim armies had fought each other in order to defend Christendom that is the kind of Christian civilization against the rise of Islam. And this fellow, Andres Breivik in Norway, who had a, a, an attack on a, a youth camp near Oslo, a, a, a political party pledged to multiculturalism, was an example for him of the way in which you should try to keep Christianity pure, to keep Europe pure, uh, in a way that uh, this multiculturalism was, uh, was a frontal assault. So around the world, there is this extraordinary rise of religious and ethnic nationalism. And this bit the dawn of the age of globalization. And so for the last 30 years or so, I've been asking really two questions. Why religion and why now? And my project began with the Sikhs. Uh, it was a community that I had lived in North India for a number of years. And so after Operation Blue Star in 1984, I went back to the Punjab to try to understand what was going on. And what I found out was that the young Jatsik men had a lot of reason to be angry and unhappy with the changing economic and social circumstances in India, but they had put it into religious terms. So although in a sense the problem was not religious, the way of framing it was. And this is also true of the many Sunni Arabs who joined and supported ISIS. They didn't believe in the kind of apocalyptic caliphate that uh, the leaders of the movement did, but they did believe in empowering Sunni Arabs in a way that the, that the governments in Damascus and Baghdad weren't able to do. This marginalization of Sunni Arabs was the force behind, uh, behind ISIS. So in a sense, you could say the problem was really social and political. It was not religious, and yet when religion entered the picture, it became problematic. It heightened the army. It heightened the intensity of the conflict. It put the whole nature of social conflict into a whole different dimension, a dimension of cosmic war, of great battle. And of course, the attack on 9-11 in the United States and is a, 
was an attempt, a symbolic attempt to show, to empower those people who had no power, who would to symbolically empower them with a force that showed that they could make a mark on human history and engage us in their vision of war, engage all of us who were witnesses through worldwide television in this sense of global conflict. So religion has this remarkable power to strengthen and, and, uh, and, and take a, a human conflict and lift it into the high proscenium of religious warfare. But why is it happening now? I go back to the Punjab, and what was surprising to me about the, the, the Khalistani movement in the Punjab was, was not opposition to other religious communities. It was an opposition to the secular state. Sant Janal Binderwali, when he talked about the Prime Minister India Gandhi, could not, could not even speak her name. He would just sputter and he'd say, that woman, that lady who was born in the house of Brahman, she's the one who's caused all these problems. And his mind, the whole idea of the secular venture, which for most of us is a form of civil society that brings us closer together and gives us a unified sense of what a national spirit was, was just the opposite. It was a, something that he thought was, uh, was corrosive to traditional religious community. And the same is true in politics around the world and the rise of the Christian right, which I've seen in my own country, these disturbing images of, uh, of new Aryans, of uh, Timothy McVeigh, the attack on the Oklahoma City Federal Building, of Andres Breivik, about whom we've talked. In the last election, and continuing in American politics, a sense of kind of a religious nationalism and religious purity of white supremacy. What an extraordinary thing for a country whose tradition is like Singapore, that of multiculturalism, of welcoming immigrants from all parts of the world. That's the strength of the society. And yet, even in the West, as around the world, there is this growing sense of fear of what Globalization has brought to all of us a closeness, an interaction, where increasingly the mobility of people allows everyone to live everywhere, to be in communication with everywhere. And where that's a good thing, and most of us feel that's just a wonderful sense of being a part of global, global citizenship, it's understandable that some people would see it uh, as, a, as a threat and form new forms of tribalism. In India, uh, the, now the rise of the BJP, although largely a secular government, has at least within it uh, a kind of a Hindutva, Muslim, a Hindu agenda that marginalized Muslims. This is the attack in Ahmedabad for which uh, the present Prime Minister Modi was regarded as at least urging on, if not more directly responsible. In Sri Lanka, as well as in Myanmar, angry Buddhists are trying to assert that Sri Lanka is really a Buddhist country, and if you're Christian or a Muslim or Tamil, whatever, you don't belong there. In the first of the movements in the Islamic countries was in 1978 with the Islamic Revolution in Iran, where the agenda of the Ayatollah was not just against the Shah, but against what he called West toxification, this inebriation of things Western that he thought globalization had, was bringing to the country, this early forms of globalization even before the end of the Cold War. Uh, in Egypt, even though at one time the Muslim Brotherhood was a very minority group, we saw that after the ouster of Mubarak, it for a while you know, achieved uh, success in being democratically elected as the government in Egypt. It didn't last very long, of course. Al-Sisi quickly replaced it. But 
uh, yet it, it demonstrated the power of this new kind of Muslim nationalism in Egypt and across the border. It really changed the character of the Israel-Palestine conflict, which had been largely a secular conflict. People forget that. They say, oh, those Jews and those Muslims, they've been after each other's throats for centuries in that part of the world. No, they haven't. It's really a very recent thing, only since around 1990, the first intifada, that the Islamization of the Palestinian movement and the Judification of Israel as a kind of secular uh, democracy began to take place. I was able to interview uh, Sheikh Yassin in the early 1990s uh, where he said that in order for Palestine to be Truly Palestine, it had to be a Muslim Palestine. Now, the interesting thing was just the day before I had talked with this guy, who's a rabbi in Jerusalem, was the leader of the Koch party, Rabbi Meir Kahane, who said the same thing about Israel. He said Israel would not be truly Israel until it is biblical Israel. And that spirit is still driving one extreme form. Most Jews in Israel don't believe this, but yet there is a sizable minority I met with leaders of this guy, who is a young radical, 20-year-old radical, who Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, is called a Jewish terrorist, uh, who is firebombing Palestinian homes and carrying out that same mission of Mayor Kahane, and he's his grandson of Mayor Kahane. So that kind of threat continues. Religion in this era may not be a problem, but it is problematic particularly when it's enjoined with this loss of faith and secular nationalism that comes in the wake of globalization and worldly conflicts that are seen as a part of cosmic war. In the global era, religion provides a special role because it provides a sense of personal and spiritual identity to communities where they feel that loss acutely. And in a sense, all of us do. Because in a global era, the three main issues are a sense of identity. Who are we? If everybody can live everywhere, and they do, if you can immediately contact people everywhere on the planet, and, and you can. The issues of identity, accountability, who's in charge? And particularly with the, global, with the globalization of, of, of knowledge, where people have instant uh, information at their fingertips, and they, feel, and they feel empowered with that kind of knowledge. And the challenges of traditional authority are, of course, considerable. And then security, how can you be truly safe in a world that's constantly shifting and changing? Traditional religion and ethnic identities provide a response. You know who you are. You know what your identity is. You know who, to whom to be accountable. You know who the authorities are, either in scripture or leadership. You have a security, the safe haven of the religious community of which you're a part. So it's no surprise that religion and ethnic communities would resurface at this moment of Hindi, of, of this movement, uh, moment of history, in order to provide a kind of antidote to the fierce ravages of globalization. Uh, and yet it also has its sinister edge. It has the dangerous edge, because this return of religion to public life not only comes with a balm and with a comfort, but also with a certain vengeance in the global rise of religious nationalism. Well, I thank you for being very patient listeners. I have a, an extra minute, which I'll cede my time to, to my colleagues, and I look forward to our discussion, which will follow. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Mark. It's a really, really interesting, fascinating panorama of the entire spectrum of religiously themed violence and, and extremism. And I think plenty to take us forward into the, the Q&A. So thank you for that. Our next speaker, Professor Jonathan Fox, please. The floor is yours. Sure. Okay, I'd like to apologize. There are absolutely no pictures in my PowerPoint presentation. Uh, I'm going to be, well, Mark Jurgensmeyer was a huge influence on my work, even from before I first met him, several years after I got my PhD, and I agree with absolutely everything he said. I'm going to take a slightly different perspective. Not disagreeing, I'm just looking at a slightly different set of questions. Uh, I'm going to be addressing the following questions. What is fundamentalism and what are its causes? What is the nature of fundamentalist politics? What is their agenda? Why does fire, why does, when and why do fundamentalist extremism become violent? And what can governments do about that in order to mitigate it? So it's uh, focused a little differently, but I think uh, in a manner that's complementary. So I'm going to start with the definition of fundamentalism. I put two up on the board. One is mine. The other is from uh, the Strong Religion book by Amund at uh, all, a classic book on the topic, but we'll go with my definition. They're very similar. Fundamentalism is a set of religious beliefs and practices that, have, that evolved or was designed to defend religion against secularism and modernity by rejecting both secularism and modernity. Sorry, my multifocal lenses are driving me a little crazy with the distance of this uh, laptop. Uh, better. Okay. Uh, now, Fundamentalism has a lot of characteristics, and I do not have time to discuss all of them. If uh, the paper I wrote, I do go into all of them. I'm going to be focusing on one of them. It's anti-modern aspect. The other aspects are all there in the literature, and they are important if you want to define fundamentalism. I don't think any one uh, academic treatment of the topic other than mine uses this particular combination, but you will find all of them in the literature. I don't think any one fundamentalist group has absolutely all of these characteristics. Fundamentalism is more of a spectrum, and if you go far enough along it, you're considered fundamentalist. And what is far enough? I don't know, but when you are far enough, you would be considered fundamentalist. It's a very fuzzy topic, but we can still try and talk about it. So. The basic argument is, and this really goes back to uh, Martin Marty and Scott Appleby's fundamentalism project from the 90s, is fundamentalism is, an, is a reaction against rationalism, modernity, and secularism. There's something going on in the world, this whole process of the Enlightenment that is changing the way the world works, and fundamentalists are not happy about it, and they are reacting against it. Consequently, fundamentalists often feel that they are threatened by modernity and rationalism and science and all of these things. They see many aspects of these things as a threat. Science is a little bit more complicated. They don't completely hate science. They just hate aspects of science or some of its consequences. But the whole concept that you can define what is good, what is right, what is wrong, what is proper human behavior based on something other than religion is a significant problem for fundamentalists. And this determines much of their political agenda and their political behavior. So let's talk about fundamentalist political agendas. Now, 
The specific agendas vary, but they do have one thing in common. They're designed to preserve their religion against the threats of modernity and secularism. Secularism is bad, it is threatening religion, it is undermining people's values in all sorts of ways. It is brought by the Western media to the rest of the world with all sorts of terrible values that conflict with religion. And this is true of fundamentalists in the West. They are not any more happy about uh, what is going on in the media. Back when I was younger, the show the fundamentalists really hated was Baywatch. That probably dates me a little bit. Because, but the fundamentalists in America didn't like it any better. Uh, it just has a different set of moral values than they agree with. And it's not just the Western media, but they don't care for that type of thing. And the world has left its proper course. There is something wrong in the world that needs to be fixed. And who is to blame? Well, the secularists, uh, members of other religions, and members of their own religion that do not follow their particular viewpoint. Their agendas matter very deeply to them, and they are very unlikely to concede on those agendas. So let's, exactly how they go about their politics really has to do with structural issues. Like any political group with an agenda, they're playing the political game within a political arena. In any particular country, the opportunity structure is different. Is it a democracy? Is it not a democracy? What type of democracy? How large a group are they? All of these things affect political agendas, whether you're a fundamentalist group, or you're an environmentalist group, or you're a human rights group, or you're pushing for a LGBTQ agenda. Is that the latest thing they're saying in California now? Is there something new for LGBTQ? I, I have trouble keeping up. Uh, Mark's from California, so he should know what the latest is. Uh, but what they want to do, so let's just start if they are in the majority. And I'm not saying the fundamentalists themselves are a majority, but let's say in the U.S., Christians are a majority. Christian fundamentalists are not, but Christians are a majority. So in the U.S., what would Christians do? Or in Malaysia, what would be the agenda of Muslims? Because Muslims are a numeric majority in Malaysia. Whether the fundamentalists are a majority or not, I don't know. Probably not. But this is what we're talking about. The first thing they want to do is they want to bring society and politics in their country in line with their ideologies. The world should reflect the revealed word. word. It should reflect God's word. God created the world. Whether you call God Allah, whether you call him God, whether you call him by another name, the world should reflect God's word. And if it doesn't, it is up to us to fix it. So in many cases, the long-term agenda is to transform the country into an actual religious state, a state governed by religious law and precepts in some manner. But often, like say for example in the US, the fundamentalist groups are clear that that is not possible in the short term. In the US, for example, the concept of separation religion state remains widely popular and going ahead and establishing, saying you want to establish a religious state makes you look something like a kook, so they start with more limited goals, pushing for specific religious agendas that they feel can gain more support, for instance, perhaps opposing gay marriage, perhaps opposing abortion. 
And the hope is, in doing so, they will mobilize more people into the movement, build momentum, and over time, at some point in time in the future, reach an agenda that is more in line with their ideas of transforming society. So that's if you're a majority. If you're a minority, uh, you have a number of options. Some minorities choose to set up closed, homogeneous communities for members only. They just sit there, create, we're gonna go off somewhere, we're gonna build a community. That community might be in the center, uh, might be in Brooklyn, New York, but culturally, it can be very, very closed off, as are many ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities in New York. They, they're in a big city, but they go to their own schools, they go to their own institutions, they work in their own businesses. The dealings with the outside world mostly have to do with business and very little else. You can create a close community in the largest city, in one of the largest cities in the world. Uh, they will tend to often seek equal treatment in government benefits. If the government gives some sort of benefits to the majority religion, they'll say, we would like these benefits too. And in some cases, they might seek special privileges that the majority religion does not have. There's been a movement in the West for Muslim groups to set up Sharia courts to deal with certain internal issues and perhaps even arbitration of some civil disputes. And that's had some success in countries like the UK and the US. Uh, although in the U.S. that is not a special issue, uh, they have all sorts of religious groups set up arbitration courts, both sides uh, have to agree to go, but uh, I'm not going to get into that, I'm running a little low on time. Now, general strategies. Again, the strategies are influenced by the opportunity structure present in the country, but something you will find across countries is they will try and proactively set the terms of the debate. How are we going to think about the issue? Take the issue of abortion in the U.S. They don't want to talk, they don't want to say we are pro-abortion. They say we are pro-life. How could you possibly oppose life? They try and set the terms of the debate to make it more difficult to argue with them. They seek to control or influence religious authority and institutions. They see if you have a synagogue, a mosque, a church that is not in line with their institutions, they will very often send members to infiltrate it, get on the board, start to influence it, move that institution more in line with their own goals. So they will work within their own religious community to change the nature of the religious institutions to be along the lines of their own ideology, and that gives them authority over the religious institutions. If they have enough support in democracies, they'll form a political party. And when they are shut out from the political process, violence is more likely to occur. Uh, I'm going to move ahead a little bit uh, to the violence part. Now, violence is largely also determined by structural factors, something I always explain to my students, the same thing that might cause a violent movement in one place, might cause a massive protest movement in another, and might simply cause an election that will cause a change in government in a third country. The social conflicts can be very much the same. The opportunity structure determines how it's going to come to fruition or how it's going to manifest. Most violence occurs for the, from those who have a political agenda to change the nature of a society's politics, country, politics, society, economics, uh, but are unable to achieve that peacefully. Most fundamentalists prefer peaceful and legal tactics as long as those tactics are allowed and as long as they're seen as being successful. However, 
If that doesn't work, we move into what I call the von Clausewitz zone. Von Clausewitz, Karl von Clausewitz is very famous for saying many things, and one of them is war the continue, is the continuation of politics through other means. If you actually look at what he actually said, he's most often quoted as saying this of diplomacy, but if you look at the translation of the word in the original language, it actually translates as well into politics. So when three factors are present, violence becomes more likely. When a political agenda cannot be achieved peacefully, when the group is unwilling or unable to compromise, give up or put off its agenda, and the group has the means to engage in violence. When you have those three factors present, violence becomes far more likely. The structure of fundamentalist violence makes it more likely Fundamentals makes it more likely because they tend to want radical changes. They tend to be in the minority and not have the power to make those changes through peaceful means, and they tend to be unwilling to give up. Now, a large number of the fundamentalists do not want to use violence, but there's always there's very often enough of them that will, and that can be all that it takes. It can be more than enough. So, what do we want to do about it? Political agenda to address fundamentalist violence. Well, this is very simple in theory, very difficult in practice. In theory, what we need to do, in my opinion, is promote religious freedom for fundamentalists as an agreement in return for fundamentalists guaranteeing they will not infringe upon the religious freedoms of non-fundamentalists. Again, very simple in practice, sorry, very simple in theory, very difficult in practice. Now, what does this mean specifically? The government has to compromise a lot with the fundamentalists. We're essentially allowing them their modes of behavior, dress, institutions without government interference, control of the education over their children, a promise that secular agendas will not infringe upon their lifestyle. And this means the government has to be willing to make religious exceptions to generally applicable laws in some cases. This is essentially granting them a form of limited cultural autonomy. This is a very serious concession by the government. It will, the government has to be seen by to the fundamentalists as having a clear and consistent policy of accommodating them within certain limits. It's important because there will be instances where the government cannot accommodate the fundamentalists, but, but the government has to be seen as generally accommodating, and those non-accommodations are an exception. It requires the explicit support from both sides. The fundamentalists are, in return, agreeing not to rock the boat, essentially. And this, the idea behind this is two-pronged. First, it removes some of the element of fear, of challenge. It, it mitigates the challenges of secularism and rationalism. You're saying, well, this is going to be present, but we're not going to apply it to you. It also guarantees religious freedom, which means religious moderates will be present in society, and they will make their own arguments to the people who might want to be religious. And people will decide from themselves which movement, they, which part of the movement they want to belong to. And fundamentalists tend to thrive better when they can depict themselves as being challenged, the oppressed. When they're not oppressed, a lot of their arguments tend to fall apart and become less popular. So a free religious marketplace actually might be a more effective way to manage them and control the level of violence. Uh, yep, just in time. Thank you very much, Prof. Fox.
very, very interesting deep dive into various facets of fundamentalism, and I particularly liked your sort of suggestions right at the end, particularly interesting when it comes to various modes of compromise or perhaps even coexistence between the state, society, and fundamentalists. I think plenty to take us into the Q&A later on. Our final speaker is Ms. Farah Pandit. Farah, please, the floor is yours. Okay, good afternoon to everyone. All right, I'm not gonna have a PowerPoint for you, so you're gonna have to listen to me, and I'm really delighted to be here in Singapore with you to talk about uh, a component of this. I was really uh, engaged in Mark's uh, overview and conversation about what's actually happening in the world right now. It doesn't feel normal, does it? There's an us versus them on so many levels, and I wanna to talk to you a little bit about that us versus them and how it connects to the kind of extremism that I have spent the last 20 years of my life uh, working on um, in the US government. I'm no longer in government, I wanna be clear about that. Um, but um, but I, I can draw on my travels to nearly 100 countries when I was special representative to Muslim communities, uh, having talked to tens of thousands of Muslim youth. So what I'd like to, do, to tell you today is what's the threat why in fact are we talking about this today there's something going on that's why we're here and I want to actually talk also about solutions uh, in my view in terms of what we all can be doing to think about what's taking place uh, around us I feel very honored to be here in Singapore I, I had the luxury of coming here in 2010 having conversations with your government about how we think about uh, religious communities and what it means here in Singapore uh, and I thought Jonathan did a a terrific job in talking a little bit about the, the strands of what's happening in my own country in America. And in between the United States and Singapore, there's a lot in between. Um, all of you know, I don't have to tell you this, but I think it's important that we're all on the same page. All of you know that between America and Singapore and everything in between, Muslims live in every part of the world. And you all know that Islam, uh, one-fourth of the planet is Muslim. But I want to bring in a question of demographics for just a moment. How many people in this room are under the age of 30? Raise your hand. Oh my gosh, very few. Okay. Um, how many Muslims are under the age of 30 globally? A billion. So there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world and a billion of them are under the age of 30 and that is very important to the conversation I wanna have with you today. Um, in a post 9-11 world, okay? In a post 9-11 world, we are talking about a very different set of factors. Any university in the world was talking about religion, extremism, politics, uh, fundamentalism before 9-11, obviously. But something very different happened after 9-11 to the demographic that is Muslims a billion strong. Seeing the word Islam and Muslim on front pages of papers online and offline every single day, since September 12th, 2001, has radically changed the feeling of what it means to be Muslim. Now you heard both Mark and Jonathan talk about the word identity, and that's at the core of what I've seen. Whether you are a Muslim in a Muslim-majority country or you're a Muslim living as a minority, if you are growing up post 9-11 and you are a Muslim millennial or a Generation Z, that question of identity is so front and center for you. You are asking questions that your parents and your grandparents didn't ask. You're asking questions like, what does it mean to be modern and Muslim? What's the difference between culture and religion? Now, 
you will tell me that everybody in the world, and this is true no matter who you are going through adolescence, you're asking questions about what the meaning of life is or who you are. That's normal. But when you see a fierce attention upon you from the other, and you feel in the environment the us versus them building, you fundamentally change the way you feel emotionally. And that word emotion is critical to us understanding this. This is not a cerebral conversation. This is not a political conversation. For young Muslims who are growing up post 9-11, this is an emotional thing first, and then all of these things fall into line. We have asked a lot of questions about how Muslim kids are preyed upon by extremist groups that move them into the armies of Al-Qaeda or Boko Haram or Shabaab or the so-called Islamic State. And at its core, these kids are asking questions that I've just described. And the people that have the loudest voices and the most credible answers to those young people are not normal people like you and me. They are the extremists who have been able to curate answers very specifically to those young kids to make them understand that if you want to be Muslim, come over to me. This idea of a monolithic Islam is the second really important piece here. The monolithic part is our enemy. We want to advertise and engage and grow the diversity of Islam globally. The extremists want you to believe that there's only one way to be a Muslim. And they will tell you what to eat, what to wear, how to pray. They'll tell you who you can talk to, who your friends are, what stations you can listen to on the radio, if anything, and where you need to go online. Now, it's important to understand identity and this idea of a monolithic uh, piece because they're part of the system that is underlying extremism globally. But there's another component as well. There is another plank that is very important as I uncovered as I traveled around the world as special representative. And that is that uh, no matter where I went in the world, I was hearing these kids, whether I was in Suriname or Guyana, whether I was in Canada, whether I was in Norway, whether I was in Morocco, whether I was in Malaysia. If you were a Muslim millennial, you were asking the very same questions and that blew my mind. But the other thing that blew my mind was that no matter where in the world I went, there was an undertone of credibility, meaning they weren't quite sure that their version of being Muslim was the real way of being Muslim. So you could be in the Maldives, Islam came to the Maldives 800 years ago, and yet you feel insecure about how you are experiencing your religion. And the reason why, and that's another plank that is underscoring the system that is underlying extremism, is the role of Saudi Arabia for the last three to four decades that has deployed a very strategic and extremely successful way of branding what it means to be Muslim. So this full-on sense that their only way to be Muslim is to be this particular way has been underscored by textbooks that say this, translations of the Qurans that say this, the replication of history in a new way, the eradication of cultural heritage and the replacement by their way of being Muslim. So you can be in Bosnia and you can see mosques that have been decimated, ancient mosques that have been decimated and brand new mosques that have come through. Now, I'm talking about Bosnia. I can talk about this part of the world as well.
I've heard story after story in Indonesia and in Malaysia about the role of heritage and history being eradicated because Saudi Arabia has come in to be able to replace it. Now, this may seem like a political statement I'm making. I'm giving you an, a snapshot in the, in the short time that I have of the, of the trends that are happening globally that are affecting that identity crisis. Because if you don't feel secure in your religion, you're going to go to the most authentic voice that you believe is authentic to be a Muslim. So in all of this understanding of identity and understanding how to be a real Muslim, the numbers are huge. With a billion Muslims underneath the age of 30, that's the exact demographic from which the bad guys are trying to recruit. That is why this is important. So whether you believe in the physical manifestation of these groups, whether it's a so-called Islamic State, or it's an Al-Qaeda, it's a Boko, it's a Shabab, the thing that you have to remember is that the us versus them ideology is global. It does not exist in a country, it exists around the world. And for these young kids who are navigating through their identity, trying to understand what it means to be Muslim, those forces are very real. Now, that's the system that's underlying extremism, but there's one key point. That's why I asked how many kids are underneath the age of 30. Shake Google. The role of technology is a virtual religion. It allows millennials and Generation Z to get the answers to the questions their elders used to give them. And for them, they're getting answers from a peer-friendly component with a swish of their finger. They are seeing what it means to be Muslim on their screen. So even if their grandfather or their grandmother is saying, that's not the way we've been doing this all these years. This is not our culture and our history. What they see on their screen is authentic to them. So they will eradicate any ideas in their head that this was the real Islam for them. Being Muslim means what are my peers saying to me one-to-one -one on their social devices. People get recruited not en masse. They get recruited one-to-one. -one. It is essential for all of you and also for governments to understand that the role of technology, the role of Sheikh Google is fundamental for us to be able to be able to solve this problem. I'm going to remind you of the so-called, quote, underwear bomber, the guy from Nigeria, you all remember him, who was a millennial, who came from a very affluent family, who uh, was studying in Great Britain when he went online and he asked Sheikh Google, why do my parents not eat halal meat? He didn't ask his mom and dad. He didn't ask his sisters, his aunties, his uncles, his cousins. He asked Sheikh Google. And what did Sheikh Google give back to him? Your family's not Muslim enough. Come over to me. Let me tell you how to do this. Now, all of you have been reading the paper. You know how algorithms work. You know what's going on with the big tech companies. I don't want to get into a conversation about that. I simply just want to say to you, as we're laying out the system that's underlying extremism for the kind of extremism that I've been working on, it is a very serious problem that we are, uh, we are facing because the numbers are growing in a huge way. Right now, it's a billion under 30, be 1.2 in a few years, and the strange thing is there'll be a shift. 
not just obviously with a, with a rapid change in technology, but the way in which we understand. You heard both the speakers before talk about different kinds of extremism. And what's happening is the different kinds of extremists are learning from each other. Even though they hate each other, they're going to the playbooks that work really well. So if you're in the United States and you're a white supremacist, you're going to look at the ISIS playbook to see how they did it because guess what? ISIS was, was really successful. So what are the solutions in the three minutes that I have left? What are the solutions? What are we supposed to do here? It's a very sobering situation that I have seen around the world. One, for all governments, you, I mean, what we have seen is a, a hard power solution. Meaning, if we can destroy an ISIS, then we're all set. I started out by talking to you about the ideology that is undermining all of this, the undermining of the us versus them that's infecting these kids. Soft power is a solution to that. Finding ways to present to young kids alternative narratives to the narratives of the extremists in a method that is making sense is critical. Governments need to scale up and do that in a real way. But I also would say to you that we have to look at our blind spots. Nobody this morning, this afternoon, talked about the elephant in the room that I think is a really important one, which is, guess what? When we're talking about this, all of the pictures you saw were of guys. And guess what? Men are not the only ones who get recruited. So we as government and as society need to understand that kids who are millennials and Generation Z, boys and girls, have to be looked at very carefully, and the solutions need to be extremely curated for the kind of kid that we are talking about. Not everybody is the same. Because if you're an H&M or you're a Zara, you're designing your communication strategy in a very curated way because you understand the data of how to persuade people. But on these issues of stopping kids from moving in a direction that is dangerous, that question of identity, we have not deployed the same kind of sophistication in cultural listening and behavioral science that will actually help us deploy the countermeasures that are needed. And I would advocate for that. And then finally, uh, I would say one other thing. The cues in society, what were the mess that we're in today, did not start just today. We saw movements begin to happen decades ago, and everybody looked the other way. It was somebody else's problem. In 2019, hate is on the rise. Whether it's a growth industry in hate, with the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States and in Europe, whether it is the change that you heard Mark talk about in Asia with regard to what's happening in Myanmar, or you're, you're seeing different kinds of shifts and changes in India, or you're seeing a tremendously different viewpoint of what it is it means to be a Muslim in Europe. Whatever you're talking about here, if we don't understand it from a perspective of a demographic, and we don't understand that this is not about the 60-year-old or the 50-year-old who shouldn't get extremist, but rather deploy the countermeasures for the young, the ones that have to understand who they are in the world today, we will never win. I actually believe we can. The solutions are available and they are affordable right now. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Farah. That was fascinating. I'm sure you agree and, and inspiring as well. Now we move into the Q&A se segments. Could I encourage you, please, to come forward with your questions? I'd like you to walk to the microphone and identify yourself, if you will, please, before you ask the, the question, as well as your affiliation, where you are from. Could I invite the first question, please? I have a question, Farah. <laughs> okay. if, if I could just pick up a little bit on what you were coming towards in the, the end. You said that, if I understand you correctly, you don't want to get into a big debate on the tech companies, and that's understandable because that's been dealt with elsewhere by, by others. And then you go on to say that some of the solutioning that we do have is rather embryonic. We don't have much by way of cultural listening and behavioral science and so on and so forth. But I wonder if we could get a little bit into the tech because the tech has been deeply implicated, as you say, shake Google, in the radicalization of people or drawing people further down certain echo chambers or filter bubbles. Is there anything good that could be said about the tech when it comes to bringing people out of these rabbit holes? Because this is tremendous implications for our analysis. Is tech actually neutral or force for good or force for bad? And of course, after Farah, Mark and Prof Fox, if you have any thoughts on this at all. Well, I, as you know, um, I have just finished a book called How We Win. And I have not at all been soft on the technology companies because I think it doesn't help humanity by us saying um, you know, that they've tried their best. I think that there is a progression of a conversation based on what regular citizens understand uh, that algorithms do. I think when we first began to see the change in our lives with our smartphones and how we use technology, no one could ever design or think that any of these companies were doing things for ill. I mean, they, you know, they were doing things to make our lives more fun, more connected, good things could happen. But the consciousness, the change in understanding how bad actors can use the very same platforms demands a change in corporate purpose. It demands a change from the Googles and the Facebooks and the Twitters, uh, obviously the big, the big five technology companies, but it also demands a change from regular citizens who say, who are we and what kind of society do we want to be in? So these technology companies have, in fact, over the last five to seven years, began to look at the soft power solutions. What can they be doing um, to help non-government organizations and, uh, and make changes, uh, small changes in the way their algorithms work so that they cannot, see, we won't see as much um, movement in hate uh, online. But my argument is it is not good enough to say you're doing something. Either do it and do it right or, um, or don't say you're doing anything at all. The small tweaks haven't been enough. The, the, the kind of money and deployment of activity by these companies has been sporadic and they haven't been at scale and scale is the word that I would use. And finally, um, nobody used the word creativity today or imagination today and I, I would say to all of us, um, this is not, the rise in extremism and solving for it is not uh, the hardest problem in the world. You know, this is not some rare cancer that we have not yet found a solution to. We all know how to fight hate. We know how to do this. It starts in the home. It goes into schools. It goes into communities. It, we, we get how to do this. The question is the where's the will? So when I look at technology companies as well, the shareholders will not change what it is that they're doing unless regular people like the people in this room begin to say we demand a different set of protocols for our society. 
I, so, I, I agree with Farmer, yes, but, yeah. but there, there, are two, there are two different, there are two other issues. One is I have a number of student assistants who've been following jihadi networks of young people who have been attracted to ISIS and some of whom gone to Syria and so forth to fight. And as they, they, they go online and on Twitter usually or Facebook and then quickly they're taken off. Uh, even before the current uh, concern about uh, the rise of extremism on Facebook. And now they move into the dark web because there are, there are alternatives to the World Wide Web that are encrypted and, and that, are, that are sources for them to interact, which makes it much more difficult to try to intercede. And then on the other extreme is the public media, particularly uh, television and, and talk radio, uh, which has its own kind of a siloed information. So we live in a very peculiar world where you can choose your own sources of information. And, and of course, the algorithms of Facebook and, and of YouTube uh, complicate that because once you get into this spiral, it's going, like going down a horrible little tunnel, you know, where, where once you start watching certain kinds of things on YouTube, then YouTube will reward you by the simpler kinds of things, and it complicates your life. So we're, the, the, the forms of media in the contemporary world, which, as you say, informs people about who they are, and we, we live in, in a world of a kind of where there's a digital person emerging, uh, a person that is informed by the kind of uh, uh, illusion of empowerment that gets from the knowledge, this shake Google that you talked about, uh, that's, that's extremely difficult to overcome. Uh, your suggestions are excellent uh, in terms of what we can do on a human level uh, to encounter this. But ultimately, it seems to me that there's, it's a regulatory po uh, problem, not just for countries, but for uh, a global networks uh, to be able to challenge, to take this challenge and do something about Can it. I do do you want finger? to respond very quickly? Yeah, just really quickly. I don't disagree. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there is a conversation about regu regulations that mm -hmm. have to happen. I want to be really clear that it is not just about takedown. That isn't going to solve the problem, and I'm not advocating for that. But the but but companies have, in fact, been quite um, willing to be creative about using, for example, um, former extremists who can offer alternative narratives. So let's use the so-called Islamic State example that you you just did. Mm -hmm. You're a young kid. You want to. You know, how do I go to Syria? What you're seeing in front of you then is um, a, an opportunity for that to kid for that kid to off ramp to somebody mm -hmm. who, on the other end of that. Uh, screen is somebody mm. who is a former extremist who can say, yeah. guess what, I've been there, I've done that. That's a tiny example, but there are many other things that the tech companies can do besides just take down and regulate, uh, regulatory thing, um, mm. uh, uh, you know, systems. But one, one other thing, if I may, um, these are gigantic companies who have mm. a lot of money at their, at their fingertips. And the people who are on the front line who are working to stop a young kid from becoming a, a terrorist are, are non-government organizations. They come from communities. Mm -hmm. The tech companies can, in fact, work in partnership with non-government organizations at a community level so that these NGOs have the very best knowledge and have the ability to scale because of the backing of these companies. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more that can be done. Agreed. Yeah. Thanks very much. It's fascinating. Are, are there questions at this stage? Please. Lady at the back, and then sir. Hi, my name is Fahima from Interreligious Organization Singapore. I take note that one of the solutions that's being put forth is a counter-narratives, um, be it the case of the Muslim identity or um, even fundamentalism. But don't you think in the last few years, such narratives have increased? There are a lot more 
programs that actually aim to sort of counter these narratives as well as promote harmony. And yet, fundamentalism as well as extremism is growing. So do you think this is an issue of a lack of demand? Or do you think it's not appealing to the general public? Or where is the gap that the rate of, and the rate seems to be increasing at the same level and we are not exactly meeting the ends? The question on appeal of the counter-narratives. Your question is for any particular speaker uh, or no, all of them? All. Yeah. Anyone like to take this question? I think it was aimed at you. Oh. Uh, well, I would say two things. One is, the word is scale. Uh, everything that has been done has been ad hoc and non-designed in a way. There's been no strategy. It's a little bit over here, a little bit over here. So to be able to measure and say that there's no big change, how can you, we, we can't even do that because it hasn't been a system that, that has actually been deployed at scale. Um, and I would also say, um, what, how, the way, because I was on the other end of this, who's designing the strategies? Who, who, government is putting money, grants, to NGOs on the ground, let's pick Singapore, because we're here, um, to an NGO that says, we want to build harmony, we want to do this, it's great. A little bit of money is not going to be able to be uh, all day, every day, many touch points. What we have to be thinking about is the experience of these young kids from the time they're young all the way through their adolescence, so what the signals that they're getting from society inside the home and outside of the home and in their devices says the same thing. And to date, 20 years after 9-11, we have failed miserably to be able to do this in such a way. Yeah, I, I think we shouldn't also, we shouldn't exaggerate the rise of religious extremism. Uh, and I'm not sure I agree that there's more of it. There's certainly, we're aware of it in a way, and they, of course, that's part of the device of people who are uh, active as in extremists, to, to have a kind of presence. Because a small number of people could blow something up and create a huge impact and make people think, ah, the whole world you know, thinks that we're at war. I mean, the, the Al-Qaeda as a movement never had more than a few hundred people involved in it, and yet it managed to persuade Americans that, that, that the whole Muslim world was at rising up and attacking the United States. It simply wasn't the case. So somehow we have to put things into perspective while at the same time trying to control the extremists as best we can, not exaggerate in a way that actually produces more extremism because to be suspicious of people, to treat them as if they're potential terrorists, uh, can uh, unfortunately become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, sorry, please, uh, one sec. I'm gonna agree with Mark that uh, sometimes the amount of extremists in the world are exaggerated and they certainly tend to make a bigger splash. The louder voice and the one you're willing to use bombs is going to get more noticed. But I I'm somewhat skeptical about how much government can really help. Uh, Farah has a great plan and it sounds good, but th there, there's one, I think, structural problem going on. To a large extent, fundamentalists, especially in the Muslim world, consider anything associated with the government completely illegitimate. And uh, Jocelyn Cesari's uh, book, What is Political Islam, makes that point and actually argues that modern political Islam is a reaction against uh, state control of Islam that started in the Muslim world about 200 years ago and cascaded over time. And I do believe a, a counter-narrative is important and it's good that's, that it, and it should be organized and 
pretty much all of Farah's points. I'm just wondering if whether that, if that happens to come from the government that might undermine everything by sort of uh, polluting the effort at its source, at least in the minds of the people they're trying to convince. Okay, so you have a comment. Really quick. Very, very quick. Uh, just yeah. really, really quick. Look, I'm not at all suggesting that it's only government. Um, I, the, that's why my, my subtitle of the book is As Long As It Is. It is government, it is the corporate sector, and it's regular people like you and me who actually have to do this equally. To go all in means all three components. And to your point about, um, I love Jocelyn, and I completely agree with what you're saying right after 9-11. Nobody wanted to touch government money, but NGOs today don't feel the same way. This is not the same world we're in today. But government isn't the solution, and they don't have the money, by the way. They're not putting the money in it. The U.S. government put 0.0138% of its budget on the war on terror into trying to find ISIS. This is hardly, it's pennies on the dollar for what they're trying to do. Thank you. The U.S. government budgets, there's still a lot of money. There isn't, not in this, not in this field. <laughs> Maybe over the coffee break, we can continue this discussion. Apolog you. Apologize for keeping you waiting. No, so. no, no, no. Yeah. Uh, thank, thanks, Rashi. Uh, and thanks, IPS, too, for this wonderful opportunity. I'm Zainal Abdin Rashi, a Muslim. Singaporean and a great believer in greater harmony. Don't, look, don't read too much into the sequence of my <laughs> introduction, being Muslim, Singaporean and greater harmony. But I have a question about um, Farah particularly, your sp speech about uh, the millennial search for identity. And um, I'm, I, as you can see, I'm not millennial. <laughs> Neither am I, don't worry. <laughs> But when I was one, <laughs> I attended an international con youth conference called by Gaddafi in Libya, and where he, in fact, dismissed Western civilization, uh, capitalism as decadent, communism as, communism as a search of collapse, and Islam, Islam, Islam as the answer. But the whole conference, the youth conference, youth international conference, rejected his approach and indeed call for inclusivism rather than exclusivism. This was back in 1973. So my question, just when you're talking about um, search of identity and fundamentalism and extremism, I wonder whether we also have missed this point about the millennial or the young Muslims' concern, if not disgust, with the kind of a hypocrisy, the kind of double standards that see, they see in the world today, particularly in how the West look at Muslim countries and look to other parts of the world. And what, for example, has happened to the Muslim nations, Muslim communities, Muslim countries that have been destroyed and in shambles. And they see that as the kind of democracy, uh, the kind of uh, hypocrisy, the kind of the double standards, whether it's about uh, Middle East, whether it's about Palestinian issue. And I wonder whether you can comment on that. My second point is that, the first point is questions about West and the Muslim world. But now I'm beginning more concerned about what the other two speakers shared, about relationship between Muslims and non-Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, in India, for example. How do you see that in the context of the present world today? Is Asia and Asia, you know? Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Islam, rather than the, the earlier notion about the hypocrisy of the West against Asia. Thank you. So two questions, 
First is Islam versus or against the, the West or, or the rest, as you may take the question. Second is Islam with or against, as the case may be, other religions. Would you like to address the first well, question? Just Farah? briefly, I mean, the, the, my, the, my two colleagues have uh, lots of information about the, the trends, about how people have thought about Islam versus the West um, over, over years, I mean, over decades. Um, but I, I want to just specifically uh, talk about what you said about millennials. Because they are digital natives and they've grown up as digital natives, there are lots of indicators about who millennials are and how they interact with each other in society. Um, and I would urge you uh, to, to go to my colleague, John Delavope, uh, at the Institute of Politics at Harvard, uh, who has done remarkable research about who millennials are, how they think about the world. That that should be the framing for the question you're asking about. It's not, it seems logical what you're saying, but the data that supports about how they think about the rest of the world is actually quite interesting depending on where, where you are. So I don't wanna make an overarching statement that says all millennials think this because it's actually not true. The one thing I will say to you, it just as I said in my speech, this idea of identity is really central to the, mu the Muslim millennials that I, that I, uh, that I met. What the bad guys that I have have seen the impact on them using us the the U.S. versus Islam, uh, excuse me, yeah, the West versus Islam or the U.S. versus Islam as the framing has in fact been successful, but that's a tier two or tier two, three level of in, of engagement. The first is how can I be the best Muslim I am, and when they go down that path. You know, an extremist will then say, and on top of that, let me tell you all the other things that will sort of deepen this idea that the West is against you. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree with that. Yes, there's a certain kind of liberation of being in this millennial community, and you're right. Uh, with all due respect, you never were a millennial. <laughs> None of us were. We didn't grow up in a world where we had a kind of sense of empowerment through knowledge that you can get uh, through the internet and through social media, and a sense of uh, liberation from traditional communities and, con and traditional power structure. This is a remarkable thing. Where there is a whole new kind of person that has come into, into being. But that doesn't mean, because there's a great need for identity, it doesn't mean that they're, they're all going to become extremists of one kind or another. And even the extremists, I have an interesting story to tell you. I was. In, in Gaza, uh, talking with people uh, of the Hamas leadership, and one of the guys who was a young man who was taking me to, uh, to meet with some of the leaders of Hamas that I wanted to talk with, uh, we were kind of crowded together in the little car, and we were kind of bouncing down the coast uh, from, uh, from Gaza City to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, Khan Yunus, where the Hamas leaders were. And he turned to me and he said, uh, you're, you're American. And I said, yes, yes. He, we hate Americans. I said, yes, I, I know that. <laughs> and he said, uh, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a professor at University of California. He said, oh, university? He said, yes. Can you get me admission? <laughs> so, I mean, even, even he, if he had the opportunity. <laughs> the point is that, that, that part of the freedom means that they now see the world as, as a as one of, of, of boundless opportunities. That's the positive part of it. Of course, there's a, the need for identity, which is the other side of it. But these two things are in interesting tension with each other. 
And I think what you've been talking about is a way of somehow allowing people to have that sense of identity and yet stimulating their own sense of creativity and their own sense of identity as individuals so they can explore themselves in this new world. And that's the positive thing about, uh, about this millennial generation. Okay. Um, I have just really one comment. Uh, I, I think we focus too much on the us versus them aspect of extremist violence, but if you look at religious violence, the vast majority of religious violence is against members of their own religion. Muslim extremists kill far more Muslims than non-Muslims. Christians extremists kill far more Christians than non-Christians. Uh, Jewish extremists haven't been killing a lot of people lately, uh, unless you count the Israeli government as Jewish extremists, which I don't. Uh, but uh, so, so we have what we call too small an end to actually make an analysis in that case. But it, extremism actually is more dangerous to its own community than it is to other communities. And I think that's, I'm not saying we shouldn't look at the us versus them, but we, we have to keep in mind there's, a ver there's an even bigger internal problem within each community. Do we have a question, lady at the mic? Uh, hello, my name is Natanya. I'm currently an intern at IPS. Uh, this question is for Ms. Pandit, but can be answered by the rest also. Um, I'd just like to ask Ms. Pandit regarding her comment about Saudi Arabia um, impacting and shaping the rhetoric of Islam in the world today. Um, would you not agree that the United States also has an almost equal role in um, shaping how Islam is viewed now, particularly as a global hegemon? And um, like, for example, through like Bush's response to 911 or the war on terror, or even the general reluctance um, to condemn Saudi Arabia in the wake of like the Khashoggi murder. Um, what is your view on America's place um, in this discourse on extremism? Thank you. So awesome question. Um, and I don't want to get into a political conversation. Um, I'm not shy, as you heard me say. So I'm going to. You could. <laughs> no, it's OK. Um, <laughs> Two things. One is um, there's an entire chapter in my book um, called Plague from the Gulf, which just dissects what I know has been happening for three to four decades, the billions of dollars that Saudi Arabia has spent on the exact thing that I described during my, my comments. Okay, I, I, I urge you to take a look at it um, and to read some of the things that I've written about this. I, we don't have the time to go into all of their techniques and what they've done around the world. Uh, in no possible way does any country in the world come close to what Saudi Arabia has been doing around the world to try to say our way of being Muslim is the only way and it's the right way. There's not a country that's anywhere close. So that's the first thing. There's a different question you're asking about a political um, comment about the United States and how they are um, talking about Islam. Uh, and you are rightly asking the question uh, with regard to our country in this particular administration on how it has cozied up to Saudi Arabia, how it has not condemned the, Mr. Khashoggi's killing, all of the things our president has said and done about Islam and Muslims, the vile commentary that is happening in the United States around Muslims at this very second, you are right to ask that question. But do I believe that the United States has an equal role in how they talk about Islam and Muslims around the world uh, and the influence on, on, no, I don't. But I do believe that the United States, and by the way, ma'am, 
every other country in the world has the right and the responsibility to speak of every religion with dignity and with grace. Uh, final question. I, I know there are more questions. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to ask Kumar to, t to ask the final question. I know he's been waiting for some time. I apologize. We can't take all the questions because we're on a very, very strict uh, timeline. Kumar, Thanks, uh, Shashi. I'm Kumar Ramakrishna from uh, RSIS NDU. Just a couple of quick questions. One for Professor Jürgens Meyer. In your book, Terror in the uh, Mind of God, mentioned that fundamentalist violence is essentially a form of symbolic empowerment in the sense that the, their goals, their political goals are rather fuzzy, right? But now with the rise of ISIS uh, and the fact that, you know, they had for a while some territorial control in the Middle East, Iraq and Syria, uh, are you revising your views on that? And for uh, Farah, uh, you made a comment about uh, there's a need in in order to sort of like uh, deal with Islamist extremism, the need to sort of like uh, diversify uh, Islam globally, the forms of Islam globally. So I was wondering, could you just elaborate a bit on that? How, how would that actually take, uh, take place? Thanks. Yep. First of all, thank you for mentioning my book. I also have a book, you see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Terror in the Mind of God, available in better bookstores everywhere. <laughs> But I'm sorry, I didn't. What, what, what did you, what did you say that I needed to revise or think about revising? I didn't quite understand that. Help me out. <laughs> but I do appreciate the plug. <laughs> the whole issue of symbolic em uh, empowerment, you know, fundamentalist violence, sure. is actually about symbolic empowerment. Right. Their political and strategic goals are really fuzzy and not that important. But now with ISIS on the scene and similar groups, should we take their political and strategic? Uh, goals more seriously. Is it, is, in other words, it's not just symbolic, it's more tangible. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, thank you for making that point. What, the point I made in the book is that, that not all acts of terrorism are for strategic purposes. It's not after 9-11 we suddenly feared that uh, Al-Qaeda would end up with boats at the shore of uh, Maryland ready to attack the... No. Uh, the, the medium was the message. The act of the terror was, in fact, what they wanted it to advertise that they had this sort of symbolic empowerment. So I kind of put a, a chart, a sliding scale between symbolic and strategic. So ISIS is an interesting example of where they're somewhere in between symbolic and strategic. That is to say uh, that, that it, there's no question that their acts of terrorism had a strategic purpose. Uh, and it, it was enable them to achieve uh, mass uh, areas of uh, conquest in, in eastern Syria and western Iraq. Uh, and yet it was also a show of power. Uh, it was also a way of demonstrating that they were a great caliphate, that they were not just out after land, that they were in, embarking on a, on a great battle, a great cosmic war, of which they had apocalyptic dimensions, after all, which went back into, into ancient scripture. So I think they were somewhere in between those two extremes of strategic and symbolic. And thank you for the question. Yeah, just really uh, briefly, what I meant by the statement about the importance of diversity is that no religion is a monolith. There's not one way to be a Christian. There's not one way to be a Hindu. There's not one way to be a Muslim. Uh, and the more we look at a monolithic view of a religion, it helps extremists define themselves as the rightful 
uh, you know, that they have the right to, to tell you how to be that thing. Um, so I, I was just making the point that diversity is our friend, and, the, and in my world, the work that I've been doing on the importance of the diversity of Islam could not be more important. The expression um, and what you wear and pray and practice and all those things is critical. Um, I don't believe uh, we've had enough time today to actually talk through some of the examples around the world in which that cultural heritage has been eroded because this idea that um, what was done in the past is wrong, and you must now be a particular way today. Um, that comes from extremist voices um, around the world. That's what I meant. Hey, uh, I'd actually like to agree, but from a slightly different perspective. Uh, and Jonathan, you also have a book. Yes, I do. All three of us have a book. Yes, this I is do. really important. I yes. have several. I have a book, and you can buy all of them on Amazon. Uh, <laughs> Okay, uh, I don't make much money off of them, do what you want. Uh, the religi religious extremism thrives the least when there is religious freedom, and that means religious freedom within a religion. The way, whenever a government becomes more involved in religion, they tend to end up endorsing one or a limited number of streams of religion, and that is the environment in which religious extremism thrives is opposition. The more you have religious freedom, the more the government stays out of religion as much as possible. It's not possible to be 100% out of religion. The extremists will thrive less. They will be present, but the religious marketplace of free ideas will do a better job of fighting them than the government could by trying to impose any one version. Thank you, very useful and timely reminder. Well, over the last one hour, 20 minutes, ladies and gentlemen, we've been entertained, engaged, and I think you would agree, educated <laughs> by three remarkable and exceptional speakers on what I think are some of the most fundamental issues of our time. So for that, could I please ask you to warmly put your hands together to thank our, our speakers. Thank you.